Uh, here's, here's the question that all of us uh, ask at one time or another, and, and Andrew uh, alluded to it, but, but the question is, does, does God really hear me? I mean, are you, sometimes I, I struggle with this, and I'd like to think of myself as uh, a man who walks by faith and not by sight, but I get, I get caught up, right, in the cares of this world and the pain of this world, and I ask myself, God, are, are you out there, and do, do you really care? And I don't know about you, but sometimes... It feels like he, he answers my prayers, and other times he doesn't. And here's a wild thought. As I'm, I'm reading through the scripture, I've been marking this down, it seems the more desperate we are, the more he, he tends to listen. Or, or to put it another way, and I, I want you to see it behind me, does, does God sometimes use the desperate cry of our hearts to, to answer our prayers? It's interesting, but we see this throughout the Bible, and we're going to see it this morning. God, God seems to respond to, to desperate people. And I know what you're thinking. But come on, Lee. Desperation, well, it just, it just seems so desperate. And if we're honest, it's a, it's a word that we don't, we don't really like. Why didn't you ask Jennifer to the dance? <laughs> I'm not that desperate. I know it's McDonald's, but it's a job. Come on, man. I I'm not that desperate. If you're really hungry, you will, you will eat the kale with tofu and like it. I'm definitely not that desperate. <laughs> but maybe, just maybe, in God's prayer economy, desperation is a good thing. Maybe it's a great thing. So we're going to hold on to that thought, okay? And we'll, we'll come back to it. We'll revisit it later. But this morning, we are... We are starting a, a new series that we've entitled The Throne. You may have noticed the new handout. Do you like the new handout? What do you think? Uh-oh. Okay, well, well, give us a little time, okay? We're open to change, changing back. We're starting a new series that we've entitled The Throne. It is a study of the Old Testament books of First and Second Samuel, and, and we're calling this series the throne because when Israel left Egypt and finally settled into the promised land, one of the first things they begged God for was a king. And we get this awkward interchange. It always makes me feel awkward between God and his people. They're like, give us a king. And God says, um, this is God. I want to be your king. Am I good enough? Nah. No, you're not. We 
We want a tangible, real, flesh and blood king. A king, they thought, was the key to, to national success. A king, they were sure, would guarantee prosperity and give them stability and keep them safe. And they looked around at all the other nations and, and they got king envy, right? And they said, hey, God, they, they've, they've got a king. Where's our king? We need a king. Well, First and Second Samuel is the story of their search for that king and how David, in many ways, was the ideal king, the king they had hoped for. But then he tragically disappoints everybody in the end, and they're left saying, is that it? I mean, come on. David is the best king we could have hoped for, and, and looked, look what happened. Is there, is there hope? So why are we studying this story? Let me summarize. David's story is in the Bible to point us forward to another king who was coming. The king who not only would he be from God, but he would be God himself. And David's story is going to point us to Jesus, the son of David, who would be the king of kings. Like, you know that. Every story in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation just points us to Jesus. And that's where this story applies to us, right? All of us, you see, are trying to put our identity in a king. Is this a timely series or, or what? Like we didn't plan it this way. We want somebody to guarantee us safety and prosperity and security. And, and for, for a lot of people in this room, you think or you thought it was marriage. Man, God, just give me the right woman. Just give me the right man. Uh, I won't be lonely, and it'll all be good, and they'll meet all my needs. How's that, how's that working out, couples? <laughs> Some of you thought, well, it's just a job. Like I labored in undergrad, and I labored in grad, or I labored in tech school, or I went to the military, and I learned to trade, and I got out, and I, man, I got the dream job. My security's in my job. I, I got to get the right job. And for others, it's family. Like if, if just we could all live together, me and my kids, and I would, I would take care of them. And then when I got old, they would take care of me. Um, they would hold my hand as I died around all of my great-grandchildren, blessing them by name, right? <laughs> right? You all dream of that. And we'd, we'd be so, so happy. Maybe our, our, our identity, here we go. This is where it gets all messed up, right? Is in a political party or a person or, God forbid, the government. And we're thinking, kind of like the children of Israel, if, if we just have the right person in charge, of course, my right person, <laughs> mine, then everything will be okay. You know how many times I've read this with the children of Israel and I'm so mad that their identity is in a king and every time the Holy Spirit says, Lee, where's your identity? Come on, big shot. Really? Whatever that thing is in which we seek our stability, prosperity, and happiness, that is our king. 
And what we're going to show you from First and Second Samuel, the life of kings, is that God is the only one who can really ever be our king. Everything else disappoints. Kings always overpromise and they always underdeliver. Now, along the way, we're going to learn a lot of things about Samuel the prophet and the first king, Saul, and even Solomon, but mostly it's going to be about David's life. David, in, in many ways, is a great man and an example. He's an example to us, but, but keep in mind, the point of David's life is not to point you to himself, but to point you to Jesus. Why? David disappointed, but Jesus never has and he never will. So, do me a favor, if you have a Bible, and if you don't, after the service, we have Bibles on some of our communion tables, okay? And if those are all out, come see me. But open your Bibles, or your Bible apps, to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 1. Um, there was a certain man from Ramathame, a Zophite. Not many Zophites around anymore. Um, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. Remember that name. Son of uh, Jeroam, the son of uh, Elihu, the son of Tohah. The son of Zuf, an Ephraimite, he had two wives. One was called, thank you, Jesus, finally an easy name, Hannah. Hannah. <laughs> it just feels right. And she, I don't think she's a Zufite either, which makes me happy. I read about the Zufites in Dr. Seuss, but that's another story. So Hannah and the other is Paniah. Paniah had children, but Hannah had none. And year after year, this man... Elkanah went up from his town to worship. He was a godly man and sacrificed to the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, we'll learn more about them in the weeks to come. The two sons of Eli were priests of the Lord. Let's start talking about the two women mentioned in verse 2, Hannah and Paniah. They're both married to the same man. Uh, Genesis chapter 2 makes it clear that God's will always for a man and woman, husband and wife, was one husband and one wife. Uh, by the way, almost every story that features polygamy in the Old Testament leads to misery, right? We think, ah, that'd be awesome. It just never is. Remember the old saying, you want to know what God's punishment is for having more than wife, more than one wife? You know it. Having more than one wife, right? Okay? Well, Hannah and, and, and it would be the same thing. It was more than one husband. Okay, let's be fair here, right? Well, Hannah and Paniah are not going to be um, good friends. They're not going to share tender uh, girl moments together. Uh, they're not going to watch chick flicks together and do crafts together. They're not, they're not heading, heading out and, you know, buying food to do Pinterest recipes, right? It's not going to happen. They go through years of family life, and, and Paniah gets pregnant, and she gives birth to a little baby, and it happens again and again and again. And Hannah just watches, most likely, most scholars say, I don't know how they know, but, but the text kind of bears this out, that Elkanah married Hannah first, and that was his choice, and he loved her, and she loved him, and, and guess what? She couldn't have children, so Paniah was kind of like, okay, let's get practical here. I got to have kids. And the text is going to bear this out right? Hannah goes through the pain of infertility. And remember, in that culture, having lots of kids was essential to having a good life. Why? Because it was an agrarian culture, which meant that the more sons you had, the more workers you had to work the land. So the more income you could generate for your family. Um, more sons meant a higher status in society and more security. No 401ks, no retirement homes, no social security. Like not, your safety net 
was your family. And so the more children you had, sons and daughters, the more likely you would be taken care of in, in old age. And what's worse, Paniah, the other wife, mocks Hannah's misery. She makes fun of her. She rubs it in. I mean, the only thing worse than a, than a sore loser is a sore winner, right? But there's probably a, a good reason for this. Verse 4. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Paniah, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. The implication is Paniah is the one who isn't cherished, and she knows this, and she knows that she'll never make her husband as happy as Hannah. Please write this down. Just, you know, favoritism is never a good thing. Right? You've heard me say this. It's my high horse. It's not cute. It's not funny. He's just like his dad. I love him. He's my favorite. It sounds whimsical and folksy and, and you know, I, it's horrific. It is destructive. If you have more than one child, both, both or more of those children should think that you favor the other one, right? They should never feel like the favorites. Hannah is the woman who has what Paniah wants more than anything else and will never possess the love of her husband. So there's two hurting women, right? But Hannah doesn't lash out in anger. Instead, she gets depressed. Verse 6, because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And this went on year after year after year and whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord her rival provoked her till she wept and she would not eat typical signs of depression her husband Elkanah comes to her and I, you gotta love his way with words and his male like compassion verse 8 this is so good her husband Elkanah would say to her Hannah why are you weeping why don't you eat why are you downhearted and catch this phrase don't I mean more to you than than 10 sons in other words how could you be so sad You've got me. <laughs> now, now, I love this. You don't have all of me, of course, right? Right? Um, you kind of have half of me. You have to share the other half with Paniah, but you got half of me. Ladies, this is a typical male, isn't it? Not real sensitive and totally overestimates his value, right? Like, I promise you, so many men in this room, when they read verse 8, they went, oh, yeah, I see, I see Elkanah's point. Got it. Yeah. Baby, you got me. What more do you need? I want to make sure, this is super important. I want to make sure we see what's happening here. If we do, we'll see how it applies to our lives. Hannah lives in a world where significance and security for a woman is determined not if, but when she has babies. Not if, but when. But Hannah is childless, which means in her culture she is worthless and she has no security. Now, now write this down. It means she has no identity. Paniah has told her that she'll never be valuable if she doesn't have kids. And Elkanah has tried to fill that void in her soul through his love. And isn't this the same thing that happens today? We live in a world full of Paniahs that tell us that our significant significance is based on how good our education is, how good our job is, how good looking we are, the size of our, our house, how many followers we have on, on Instagram, 
And because of that, some of us feel worthless and jealous and dissatisfied. This came home to me a couple weeks ago. I don't know if I'll ever forget this conversation. I sat with a very godly woman in our church. And she said, I'm really struggling. I'm hurting. And I said to her, I said, you know, she's married. This is, you just start kind of working through the grid. I said, how's your marriage? I love my husband. He's phenomenal. How's your kids? They're great. I mean, they're little, but they're just, my God, God is so good. They're healthy. Oh, okay. Um, whew. Uh, are you in a community? Community is so important. When you get out of community, you're, you're, you, can, you can just do and say and go places you shouldn't do. And say, I mean, no, no, I love my community group. So finally, I said this. What's the problem? She said, I look around at everybody else. I get on Facebook. I get on Instagram. I get on the internet. And I feel like I'm missing something. Write this down. That's the spirit of Paniah. That's the father of lies. That's the devil. It's not God. It's not God. So, what is Hannah supposed to do? Paniah and Elkanah are no help. Hannah has nowhere to go but to God. We call this prayer. So that's where she turns. And out of her hurt and her pain and her, min- her misery, she cries out to the one who can help her. And I, and I want us to notice the authenticity of her prayer. And I want to pull out three examples. Three examples of, of Hannah's prayer that I think will be of help to us. First example is this. Now we've circled back. We've come full circle. Hannah prays in desperation. Verse 9. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house, and in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. Abraham Lincoln said this. I have been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had absolutely no other place to go. Desperate. William Temple, Bishop of the Church of England, 1890, said, I love this, when I pray, coincidences happen, and when I don't pray, they don't. Right? Oswald Chambers, utmost for his highest, Scottish Baptist preacher, evangelist, said, Prayer does not fit us, prepare us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Chuck Smith, founder of Calvary Chapel, said prayer does not change the purpose of God, but prayer does change the action of God. She holds nothing back, but she just keeps praying. Verse 11, she says to God, Lord Almighty, If you only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, and then I will give him, I'll give him back to you for for all the days of his life. But hey, that's desperation. And this isn't metaphorically. Like we do that, right? Like Brad Brad and Jenny will bring you up here, you parents, and we'll have uh, a baby dedication. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And we read scripture and we lay hands and we pray, then you all commit 
to being a part of this thing called the body and holding them accountable. And you metaphorically, you're like, I will give little Lee Jr. back. I want to do it. But you don't literally like one day come into my office and go, here he is. Oh, awesome. I love it. You don't do that. She's going to do that. I mean, literally. She's desperate. Later in verses 15 and, and 16, there's phrases like this. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I'm, I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. I had been praying here out of my, my great anguish and, and, and grief. She was like a sacrifice, right? She's just pouring like wax that melts, just pouring her soul out. God! I don't know. I will become more undignified than this. I don't care. Do we ever do that? I mean, these are emotionally loaded words. What I, what I want us to notice with, with Hannah is that she's fully present and passionate with, with God. She's, she's all, all there. And I think one of the things that, that makes prayer difficult for us, especially as we get older, this is so sad, but, but often we don't pray with passionate hearts because we're embarrassed. Or we think, we think that God only, only wants us to approach him a certain way and he only wants to hear certain things or we think that we have to have it all together to be dignified, right, to be measured before we approach God. Actually, from God's perspective, it's just the opposite. You may recall in the book of Hebrews, and we studied this beautiful passage, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, says this, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses. You don't have it all together. You're weak. You're needy. I am. You're desperate. He gets it. But we have one who has been tempted in every way. Gone through what you've gone through. Just as we are, yet he didn't sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Insert the word desperation so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I'll never forget listening to Francis Chan praying for the salvation of a daughter who'd kind of gone, gone astray. He's, I just cry out to the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit! Just wring her neck. Do whatever it takes. Bring her back. Mom and dad can't save her. And his passion and his desperation, I went, oh, oh. Please hear this. Hannah comes to God exactly as she is all of her heart, all of her mess and her brokenness and her stuff. God doesn't want lip service, but he wants passionate, heartfelt dialogue from his children. First example from Hannah is that we're to pray desperately. Second example, Hannah prays specifically. She asks God directly, for what she wants. Again, verse 10, in her deep anguish, Hannah prays to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor, Nazarite vow, he'll be a Nazarene, will ever be used on his head. Hannah specifically prays in verse 11, you might want to underline it in your text, give me a son. 
I won't spend too much time on this, um, but when we pray, we shouldn't pray generically. That is the lazy way of praying. We should pray specifically, right? Sometimes we pray this way, God, God bless me. In what ways? Just bless me. What does that mean? God, meet my needs. Well, what needs? Lay them out. Let God decide whether or not they're, they're appropriate needs. God, use me. I, how? Where? When? And do you, really, do you really want to be used? Are you really available? I don't know where you're at this morning and, 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 and what you need, but God does. And he wants to hear from you. And get this, he loves the details. Like he never gets tired of the details. In the New Testament book of James, James says that we, we have not because we, we ask not. We might interpret that because we ask generically. Or we don't ask at all, obviously. In verse 12, we're told that her prayer catches the eye of Eli the priest. He's sitting there in his chair by the temple. It's important to note that the Israelites, when Israelites would pray, they would pray out loud um, both publicly and privately. Imagine that, Jewish people who are really noisy, right? <laughs> I'm really noisy. I'm really loud. And they would pray out loud in private and in public. Psalm 3 and verse 4 was a typical type of prayer for the Israelite. I call out to the Lord. I verbalize this, and he answers me from his holy mountain. That's why, you've heard me say this before, the Jews have the wailing wall in Jerusalem and not the pray silently wall, right? But Hannah prays silently. It's an indication of the depth of her emotion. It is, you've been there, it's too deep for words. But this wasn't normal. And Eli the priest sees that she's doing this, and he thinks, well, she's drunk, and he rebukes her. Eli says to her, get rid of your wine. You're drunk. Stop drinking. Stay away from the margarita bar. And she replies in verse 15, not so, my Lord. Um, I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer or margaritas. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. And the phrase deeply troubled literally means heart and spirit. It can mean saddened. It can also mean persistent. It may be that she's saying this, I have a toughness, a hardness of spirit, so I just keep praying. I just keep praying. And here's a woman, think about this, disappointed year after year in her deepest desire to have a child, and she can't. She's mocked by her culture, her husband's other wife, and misinterpreted by the priest, and this goes on year after year, and she just won't stop praying. She just persists in prayer, praying specific prayers for God to answer. Third example. Third example for us when it comes to prayer. I love this. We see that Hannah prays trusting, trust, trusting God for the answer. I want us to notice something else. After Eli accuses her of being drunk, she, she shares her, her heart with him. She says... I, End of verse 15, I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Verse 16, do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and, and, and grief. And then in verse 17, Eli, I love this. this. This prayer reminds me of Jim Hall, right? It's just one sentence. You know I've shared this before, but you're, and, and Jim has taught all of us on staff. He's modeled this for us. You're there with Jim, and you start to talk about something, a, a simple prayer request, or it could be you're sharing your soul, and immediately he gives you like a, a one-sentence prayer. 
with his eyes open, which always freaks me out, right? <laughs> like, I don't know why it does. It just does. So Eli hears this. He's skeptical. He thinks she's drunk. But immediately we go to communal prayer. She's praying. He's like, let me pray for you. Verse 17. Eli answered, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. And this is the mystery of prayer, isn't it? On one hand, sometimes it's, God, just, just protect my child. The other time it is five days of fasting, weeping before God. It's desperation. Go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. Just a side note here, but notice how she prays in community with, with Eli. It reminds me of the passage in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 20. Jesus says, where two or more are gathered, there I'm with them. And now check out her, resp- her response to prayer, verse 18. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Depression gone? Wait a second. <laughs> she... She's desperate, she's persistent, she's mocked. Eli says, may God hear you. Boom. Tears are gone. She's going to the buffet. She's hungry. She's back. Notice, this is before she is pregnant. At the end of this chapter, she will get pregnant. But this statement about getting up and eating and her face no longer being sad, this is before she gets pregnant. Very important order. She doesn't pray, get pregnant, and have joy. She prays, this is really important. You ready? And she has joy. God is not some celestial genie in the sky. Right? I I, I ask and you give. She doesn't pray... Get pregnant and woo, thank you, and have joy. She prays, experiences the joy of the Lord. She gets it, and then she gets pregnant. What happened? All of her life, she sought joy in having a son. Now she finds it somewhere else. Look at the prayer she prays in chapter 2. And she'll tell you where she finds joy. First Samuel chapter 2 is a song that she writes. Then Hannah prayed, and she said she wrote a song. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted up. My mouth boasts over my enemies. She's thinking of Paniah. For I delight in your deliverance. Verse 2. We sing this, right? We've, we've, sing, we've sung this verse. There was no one holy like the Lord. There was no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. You say, Lee, what's the point? Her strength is now in God, not in children. She goes on in that prayer to talk about God's unfathomable wisdom, his strength, his beauty, his holiness, his compassion for small, broken, and sinful people. 
This was Hannah's repentance and salvation. She found her life and security and identity and significance in God. And she no longer, um, she no longer depended on it from, from family. She was free. And so now she says, God, I'm still asking you for a son. But all my life I've asked you to, to give me a son for some deficiency in my life. It's always been for me. Now I'm asking for you. You are my sufficiency and my treasure. So if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. Verse 19, early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. And Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. He remembered it all. That's what he does. Please hear this. He remembered her sorrow. He remembered her persistence. He remembered her desperation. He remembered a kind of a wicked, not very good priest, Eli. He remembered his one his one verse, quickie prayer, sitting on a seat, didn't even get up after he mocked her. He remembers it all. But he doesn't remember us and we go, nah, don't trust you, don't believe you, you're not going to do it my way, my identity is over here, not in you. He doesn't remember that. So in the course of time, verse 20, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. This is so cool. She named him Samuel. Any Samuels in here? Raise your hand if you're a Samuel. Oh, come on. What are the odds? There's like that one Samuel in here? Let's bring that name back, okay? <laughs> Maybe you will after this. This is really cool. The name Samuel means God has heard. Wow. God has heard. Maybe some... Some in this room this morning, like Hannah, you're experiencing, I know some are, great pain. And maybe you've been praying for a long time, and, and maybe you're tempted to give up. Don't give up. Let's go New Testament. Jesus gives us a, a, a parable in Luke chapter 18. I love this I always love this parable. I need this parable. Because my heart is prone to wander, wander and my prayer life is prone to give up. Then Jesus said to his disciples, told his disciples a parable, verse 1, to show them that they should always pray and not give up. It's interesting. You would think, you know, this is crazy. God knows all. Why do I have to pray? I'm not sure, but he certainly likes it. And he said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. You know, I, Jesus is building the case here. This is a pagan man. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. And for some time he refused. But finally, this is so cool, he said to himself, self, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, another, another uh, translation would be she just won't stop coming at me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. <laughs> She's crazy. <laughs> Crazy persistent, right? Let me just encourage you this morning. Keep bothering God with your desperate prayers. Keep knocking. Keep begging. Keep pleading. Become more undignified than this. Oh, I, that doesn't seem appropriate. When you're tempted to give up, Hannah's a great example to follow. So when life gets tough, and it will get tough, 
Pray desperately. Pray specifically. And, and pray trusting God for the answer. All right, let's wrap this up. You say, Lee, um, that was an awesome story. It was, but there's more. There's also a, a parallel between this story and, and Jesus' story. This story isn't just a random stand-alone story. It's a micro-story in, in the narrative of a macro-story. You see, years later, the Bible would tell us the story of, a, of another young woman facing an impossible birth like Hannah. And this woman's name was, who, who was it? You know, Mary. Having a son was impossible for her because, well, she didn't have a husband and she, she had never slept with a man. And for Mary, having a baby meant the loss of, of everything she held, held on to for significance and security. To be pregnant out of marriage meant the loss of re- reputation. It meant financial hardship. It meant to be scorned by everybody. But like Hannah, Mary understood that God was a better source of identity and security than reputation or power or money. And so she surrendered herself to God and found her identity and hope in him. And she expressed that hope just as Mary did with the song. It's called Beautiful Song. It's found in Luke chapter 2, Mary's Magnificat. And it's almost exactly the same wording as Hannah's. And both Hannah and Mary declare in song that they find their security and significance in a God who who would care about the broken and the poor and give himself to them. And, And Hannah gave birth to Samuel, who would be a prophet and a priest, and he would anoint the king. And Mary would give birth to the one who would be prophet, priest, and king. And that's where this story gets really good, see, because Jesus, like Hannah, would pray for deliverance from a curse and from the shame. But whereas God answered Hannah, God would turn his back on Jesus. Why? So our our real shame could be taken away and so that we could be restored to God. You see, the truth is our real need, our real brokenness comes from the break in our relationship with our creator. And that's what Jesus would accomplish for us. He would restore us to God. That's what the whole Bible is about. The Bible is not about giving you a good marriage or awesome singleness or a beautiful, a beautiful career, an amazing, amazing house. And that's not what the Bible's about. It's not about giving you more, more money, but what we need in our life, this is what the Bible is all about, is to restore the broken image of God that took place in the Garden of Eden. And the devil whispers, and sometimes he shouts to us. No, 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 it's about this and this and this and Instagram and Facebook. and It's, it's, it's all that other stuff. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. It's about me. You can't read Hannah's story in isolation. No Bible story can be read in isolation. The story is not about Hannah and her children. It's about lost people. That's you and me. And Jesus. And this is where it applies to us. There's a parallel between Hannah's story and our story. Hannah looked to a son for security and significance. And Israel will look to a throne, to a king for those things. Here's the question. Where will we look? 
shows the king that we seek. Let me tell you what religious people, and I'm, I'm almost done, and non-religious people have in common. They both think they need something besides God for security and significance. Non-religious people think they need something instead of Jesus. They think that life is in, you name it. Religious people think they need something in addition to Jesus. Jesus and, look at, I'm walking elderly ladies across the street. Look at me, I'm, I'm doing good works. Look at, I'm giving. The point of the Bible is to know Jesus. He's our life. He's our security. He's our identity. He's our king. I love what the hymn writer said. Our hope is built on nothing less nothing than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. Boy, there's lots of frames out there to trust, right? Lots of identity stealers. But wholly lean on Jesus' name. It's on Christ, the solid rock, that I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Well, this morning we learned that God does hear our desperate prayers next week. And it's going to be really good. We're going to learn how to, how to hear from God. Does he speak to us? Does he have a word for us? This time I'd like the prayer team to come on up. And this is a good time as we approach prayer and communion to, to take some time right right there in your seat, your private altar, and cry out to God in desperation for significant needs. <laughs> you know what they are. It's also a good time to go and pray with someone on the prayer team, like that odd couple of Eli and Hannah praying together, where two or three are gathered. Jesus is right in the middle of that. He likes that. Let me also encourage you that as you go and take communion, as you celebrate Jesus' sacrifice and his soon coming, remember that Jesus left his throne in heaven to become a sacrifice for us so that we might be a kingdom of priests that reign with him forever. Now that's some kind of king. Jesus, it's all about you. It's always been about you. Everything else is fool's gold. Every kingdom, every kingdom that's ever been, every throne, every world leader, one day they'll all bow before you. One day they'll worship you. Father, help us now to be a people who place our identity in your son Jesus and what flows out of that like Hannah, like Mary, is a song of thanksgiving. We commit this to you in his name, in his name alone. Amen.